Hey there, theater lovers, it's Bryn. This week's episode is very exciting, as we're exploring Caradad Svitch's newest play, Desdemona's Child. It's a sequel to Shakespeare's Othello, and I love modern retellings and usages of Shakespeare. I think you guys will enjoy this a lot. There are some trigger warnings, but we'll get to those later. First, here's this week's announcements. Ensemble Studio Theatre is advertising a Youngblood reading of Running While Black by Jana Farron-Smith, hosted by New Federal Theatre. It's tonight at 7 p.m. EST and free to attend. Make your reservation at estnyc.org slash rwb. The Tank NYC is advertising a reading of Bushwick Dumpster Play by Miles Mondwell. It premieres tomorrow at 8 p.m. EST. Tickets are $5 each and can be purchased on the Tank's website. Just go to their calendar for online events. Starting today, you can stream What the Constitution Means to Me on Amazon Prime. I was so excited to hear about this, despite my uh, not-so-great feelings towards Amazon. I was so sad when I couldn't manage to get tickets to this. So I'm glad that at least now anybody can see it for free with a Prime membership. And that's all for today. We seem to be in a bit of a lull this week, but I know I'll have a few fun Halloween slash spooky things to tell you all about next week. And with that, let's begin our discussion of Desdemona's Child by Karadadzvich. Karadad Svitch is a playwright, songwriter, lyricist, translator, and editor. She was born in Philadelphia in 1963 to Cuban, Argentine, Spanish, Croatian parents. Svitch earned her BFA from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and her MFA from the University of California, San Diego. She has written over 40, yes, 40, full-length plays and 15 translations, as well as other short works. Karadad Svitch is the founder of Theater Alliance and Press No Passport. Her work has impacted communities of multiple diversities and has responded to the Deepwater Horizon disaster in the U.S. Gulf region, veterans and their families, survivors of trauma and those committed to artistic expression of advocacy for U.S. Latin writing voices, and engagement with representations of the fragile shores in our lives, amongst others. She has won an insane amount of awards. Her most recent ones include 2018 ATHE Ellen Stewart Career Achievement in Professional Theater Award, 2018 Tain Foundation Award, 2015 Source Festival Finalist, 2013 National Latino Playwrights Award, and 2012 Obie for Lifetime Achievement Award. Before I go on to discuss the specific play, let me just give a few trigger warnings. Racial injustice, police brutality, and murder. If any of that sounds like too much for you to handle right now, I suggest skipping to the next episode, if applicable. Now, on to Desdemona's Child. Here is a short summary of the play from New Play Exchange. Desdemona's child comes back to the town in which they were raised, haunted by the ghost of beautiful Dee, 
and with a desire to come to terms with trauma from their past. In this town, trouble rages as a climate of hate threatens to overtake all. A flood and a whole lot of honest witnessing may start to turn the tide of human darkness. Desdemona's child, parentheses blood cry, asks of us the same questions D child asks of themselves. How do we survive histories built on oppression? How do we contend with legacies we're born into? How do we begin to heal when traumas inked into our being? This play is set in modern-day U.S., freely inspired by and set in the wake of Shakespeare's Othello. So, to truly understand this work, you don't have to know every little thing about Othello. But I think it's easier to follow when you have at least the basics down. So let's talk about them. Here is a very short summary from Sparknotes No Fear Shakespeare, which I highly recommend as a tool for Shakespeare beginners. The story of an African general in the Venetian army who is tricked into suspecting his wife of adultery, Othello is a tragedy of sexual jealousy. First performed around 1604, the play is also a pioneering exploration of racial prejudice. Now, that second part is important to the thematic content and message of Desdemona's Child, but we'll get to that here in a second. First, let's go a little more in-depth into the plot of Othello. Now, there will be some spoilers here, but they're crucial to understanding the plot of Desdemona's Child, so please forgive me. So, the three characters from Othello that are talked about and or appear in Desdemona's Child are Iago, called Bitter Eye, Othello, called Fierce O, and Desdemona, called Beautiful D. In the original Shakespeare, Othello and Desdemona are a married couple, and Iago is a soldier in the Venetian army who is overlooked for a promotion by Othello. Basically, Iago manipulates everyone in the play to an absurd degree, including, most tragically, Othello. Iago causes misunderstandings, instigates fights, and spreads misinformation in order to take his revenge on Othello, as well as, it seems, half of the Venetian army. Eventually, Iago convinces Othello that Desdemona is cheating on him with another Venetian soldier. In a jealous rage, Othello smothers Desdemona with a pillow. Once this has occurred, others come into the room supposedly alerted by the noise, and it is revealed by Iago's wife that it was all a lie. This causes Iago to kill his own wife, and then Othello kills himself. Yep. Shakespeare didn't call them tragedies for nothing. In this modern sequel to Othello, it is revealed that Desdemona was pregnant with Othello's child, which was cut out of her dead body in time to save them. Oh, and just a note on pronouns here. Every character in Desdemona's child is referred to with gender-neutral pronouns because, and I quote from the playwright's notes, All the roles, save for the police officers, Bitter Eye, and D-Child, may be cast with actors of any gender, orientation, ethnicity, race, ability, and age over 18 years. D-Child is supposed to be on the feminine side, and Bitter Eye and the police officers on the masculine. But everyone else can be any gender so they, them pronouns are used. Anyways, this play is all about Desdemona and Othello's child, dealing with the trauma that seems ingrained in their blood. 
We see throughout the play that this trauma is experienced by the town at large, and this is shown through floods as well as civil rights protests. It is soon discovered that something fishy is going on at the police station because multiple non-white officers have supposedly committed suicide. And here's where we get back to the part of Othello about racial prejudice. See, even though Othello is African, it wasn't until 1826 that the role was played by a Black actor. Even though a central theme of the play is that others are prejudiced against Othello because he is Black. Yeah. Zvich applies this message of racial prejudice in a way that is, unfortunately, very applicable to our current society through police brutality. All right, I'm not going to elaborate any further because I don't want to upset any of my BIPOC listeners, and also because I'm white, and therefore I feel like it's not really my place to discuss any further. Just know that this podcast is a staunch supporter of Black Lives Matter. A few organizations that I personally have donated to will be listed in the show notes of this episode, in case anyone would like some suggestions of good places to donate to. Unfortunately, due to contract stipulations we were previously unaware of, I had to remove the song that was previously in this episode. Currently, I'm looking for someone to do a monologue. Hopefully, the person who played D-Child in the performance that we are talking about in this episode will be able to lend their voice. But for now, sorry, there is no reading portion of this episode. That will be rectified very, very soon. Please enjoy the rest of the episode. And now, let me introduce you all to today's special guest, Cynthia Cunningham. Cynthia earned her MFA in theater from Sarah Lawrence College back in 2019. She is currently serving as the dramaturg for University of Science and Arts of Oklahoma's online production of Desdemona's Child, directed by Katie Davis. Hey, Cynthia, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Hey, Bren. Thanks so much for asking. I am doing well, and I am at home right now, chilling out with my cats. <laughs> Sounds great. That's kind of what I'm doing as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I'm really glad to hear that there are still uh, productions being put up by universities uh, during this, uh, as everyone keeps saying, this uh, unprecedented time, um, and especially of uh, plays like Desdemona's Child, uh, which you yourself uh, made me aware of. And I uh, I love the script. It was a really refreshing read, I think, uh, for myself. And I wanted to ask you first, before we get into really nitty gritty stuff, uh, what is it about this play that first excited you? What like initially drew your attention when you gave the script that first read? Sure thing. So... The thing that really stuck out to me um, with Desdemona's Child is the writing. So the playwright um, is Kari Dashvik, um, and she writes very poetically, but also very concise. And so as you're reading the script, you probably noticed um, some bits of text that were in parentheses. And those... um, those words, those thoughts, those ideas are really implied for the actor um, to take into the rest of their lines. And so 
like I said, the first thing that I picked up on was just the writing. Again, it's very poetic, but it's also very concise. Everything that these characters are saying, they're saying for a reason. And so there's no room um, for any sort of paraphrasing at all. And I think that that is giving words that much power is always an interesting idea for me. Yeah, that is something I initially noticed on my first read through as well, Um, because it's something I feel we don't see in a lot of not just theater, but in a lot of media in general where dialogue is present, Um, because there's no pardon, pardon the French, but there's no bullshit. It's just it's straightforward. It's they're saying what they think. It doesn't seem like there's too much extraneous uh well, just like that. There's no us, there's no ums. Exactly. And that style of dialogue is sort of contrasted with uh, these visions that D Child has of Beautiful D, where she uh, sings uh, in a blues sort of style. And I loved the text of these songs. Um, and I almost wish that there was some way I could have heard them. And I wanted to know how did you and the rest of the production team view those sections and what do you think they do for the rest of the play? I'm so glad you asked that because it's one of the things that I geeked out about. Um, So in addition to my background in theater, I also received um, a vocal performance degree from uh, my alma mater, which is the University of Science and Arts of Oklahoma. And Mm -hmm. so what I love about the the music within this show is that there are three distinct visions or songs. And the first, you're right, is very much in that blues, bluesy sort of style. Um, And that's for a couple of different reasons. One, because stylistically it sets the tone um, for the show because we, so we enter in um, the day of a funeral and within this funeral, there are other undertones um, because it is later implied that this, suicide quote unquote um was actually a murder and then we we learn we start to figure out what and who caused that and and also traditionally blues itself um was born from the struggles of poor black people um blues mm-hmm. so if so for example um i think one of the examples that i gave um during one of our first rehearsals was when you were writing a, when, whenever you were writing a blues song, you just thought about whatever bad was happening in your life that day. You know, mm-hmm. if your girlfriend broke up with you, you're going to go write a blues song about it. If you lost your job because your boss, you know, couldn't pay their rent on time, then you would go and write a blues song about it. And so that style within the first vision helps to set that tone. And then when we get to the second song, Um, it shifts a little bit because it's not just blues. It's also starting to get some of these ragtime beats. It's more syncopated. And for that in particular, we're now shifting to a point in the script where there are protests happening, where there are things within the town being unearthed, you know, seemingly for the first time. And then when we get to the last song, the one that's really upbeat, that's really syncopated. um, And that's because we're now at a point in the story after these protests have happened, after these two people have been brought to justice. And then we're suddenly on the cusp of this 
whatever sort of revelation. And so the music and the styles of the music help to tell that story. And so what we've done with them is we've actually um, brought in a composer to um, obviously record original music using these lyrics. And so if anyone does happen to catch the virtual performance, you'll be able to hear those songs for the first time. That is amazing. Holy cow. Um, Do you mind? uh, What's the name of the composer? I do not remember off the top of my head. That's all um, right. But I can send you um, a list of our entire production team. That would be great. I can put that in the show notes for anyone interested. That sounds great. I love working with uh, composers and uh, lyricists with new work. Um, I think personally, music is a very important part of my personal uh, creation process. And I think it can really do a lot for a performance uh, to bring original music in there. It can really, uh, I think, enhance the playwright's uh, original ideas. And another thing I was really struck by, um, especially my first read through, but almost even more so as I continued to read the script, uh, was that throughout the play, the characters talk about the town by the sea uh, that was swallowed by a flood. It's implied that the story of Othello took place in this now drowned town, and then there's another flood in the current town. And to me, the flood seems representative of something that I'm not quite sure what that something is. Um, How did you as the dramaturg view that? Yeah, so for me personally, um, I viewed it as the water rising being equated to the rising problems. So down in what was originally Crete, but is now being transported to essentially whatever small town USA, because that's generally the location, the feel of the show. Um, And so the idea is that this place was overtaken by not just physical water, but by all of the problems that came out of the events from Othello. And so, and because of the town's refusal to, you know, reconcile with those problems, again, they were overtaken by the floods. And then they just relocated to this new location, which now, even 25 years after the events of Othello, because those problems were never dealt with, you know, this new town and the uh, metaphorical boards that they've placed over all of their problems are starting to seep through. The water is rising, there are roots coming up. And, you know, for at least when I read it, um, my director and I, we we kind of equated the, these rising waters to the problems of the town coming to the surface and asking or forcing rather the town to deal with them for the first time and then threatening to either overtake this town as well or maybe maybe not to recede depending on how the town itself acts another um comparison that um aside from that very very metaphorical heady one um (laughs) that are that um Katie Davis, the director, um, also took from it was the actual issue of climate change, because 
Oh. Uh, take, for example, um, Louisiana, like there's water literally rising and yeah. will eventually overtake overtake that area. And so it's kind of a it's it's got dual meaning. One is a very literal example of climate change, and the other one is a very heady metaphorical one of not of failing to actually reconcile with the problems of the past. Wow. Wow. I love that. I love it when something functions in more than one way in a play and gives us new meaning in multiple ways. Ugh, yes. Yes, Caridad. Um, <laughs> and uh, speaking of the problems that the town is kind of ignoring and just kind of waking up to uh, at the beginning of the play, uh, near the end of the play, as you stated, two police officers, uh, I believe Cameron and Peyton, uh, they commit a murder. Uh, they murder their fellow officer, Landry, who is a black police officer. Um, and it's also implied that they have committed multiple murders like this before, i.e. the quote-unquote suicides that are talked about in the beginning of the play. Um, how did you view this section of the play? And how did the production team address it and talk to the actors about it? <sighs> that is... Yeah. In fact, a long um, answer. So I guess yeah, I'm we got time. So I guess I'm going to take it in parts. No problem. My reaction to it the first time was, um, it was hard, um, because when I first read it. You know, as a Black woman in America, I yeah. read it after the events of Breonna Taylor, after mm -hmm. George Floyd, um, after so many others. Um, mm -hmm. And reading about these, these quote-unquote suicides that just happened to occur only to the mm, people of color within this department was, it struck a type of nerve that I wasn't ready for it to strike at the moment because yeah. it not only took me back to those very recent things, but to, um, to other things like the current um, situation that's happening down at um, at Fort Hood, where there are soldiers who are going missing, who are being murdered, um, and then those things being deemed suicide. And then it also takes me back to people like Emmett Till, who was murdered as a 14-year-old boy, but then because of viewpoints at that time his murder was deemed justified because yeah. of who he was and so that was one thing that it initially brought up because something that is implied even if it's um not necessarily explicitly stated is that the sawyer the um the murdered police officer whose funeral we um, are at at the beginning of the show followed the deaths of two others and they were all non-white. Yeah. So they're all non-white and that 
is truthfully what brings D child back. D child has left for whatever reason, but somehow she has heard about these deaths and she is now back to uncover not just the truth about them, but the truth about Bitter Eye and um, Fierce O. Yeah. Because of the, the themes of these particular characters in these instances, i.e. people of color um, essentially being silenced, um, yeah. you'll notice that Landry starts the beginning of the play a little bit more quote-unquote friendly with the other cops and it isn't until the protests come up and Landry starts essentially thinking for themselves that there is a problem and then once Landry you know brings up these problems of um what would be considered quote-unquote the ghetto or the bad quote-unquote part of town they're not being adequate police support over there or whatever support there is there erupting in violence as opposed to the good quote-unquote side of town which is where we generally see our police and so once Landry brings those things up then Landry you know becomes a problem and the theme of that is that people of color who challenge systems are a problem that need to be dealt with. And so thinking about that, that was another reason that really compelled me to work on this show. Um, Because yes, at first, yes, I was very drawn to the language, but I also had, I also felt this need to be, a support for the actors who were going to be in these roles because as a 26 year old professional yeah it was hard to separate a lot of things and to not internalize them and so yeah. I knew that for performers young POC, young black performers at a predominantly white institution with a white director um, regardless of how much anti-racist work she's done um, especially between the ages of 18 and 21, I knew that without the right kind of support, that this show would have been much more harmful to them. And so, and so in approaching, so how we approached it, um, was one by bringing me in, um, and also one of the things that Katie recognized was that she, as a white director would not adequately be able to have these conversations, um, especially with these performers. And so that is something that I definitely commend her on. Um, But in addition to that, during the, um, during our first rehearsals, we did a lot of text work. And so we tend to broke them up in scenes. And so those would be the scenes that we worked on and analyzed and the rest of the cast could be present. And so we're all engaging in conversations. And during these specific um, scenes and then the scenes that then fed into them, 
we would again have open dialogues. And so there was also one night um, where I believe that there was an update in Brianna Taylor's case. And I just mentioned to Katie, I was like, Katie, today has been really shit. And yeah. I do not think that tonight is a good night to go over these scenes and to just dig into those fresh wounds again. Yeah. And so we worked on other scenes that night. And in other rehearsals, um, I would just have to be the voice of perspective, really, because as I mentioned before, Katie knew that she wouldn't uh, adequately be able to handle the conversations on her own. I think that's something directors and playwrights even have to recognize is that in this instance, particularly white people will never have a full understanding of the experiences of people of color. Of course. So even if you, regardless of how much anti-racist work you do, regardless of how many workshops you go through, um, there are just certain things that will never translate. And I guess what this ultimately leads me back to is this idea of intimacy. So on one hand, we have um, intimacy training for um, sexual scenes, um, for, yeah. for anything like that. But I also think that we should also have this sort of thing for when talking about race and ethnicity and things of that nature, because, because if you are ever in a situation where, you know, if you don't have access to a person of color who can lead these conversations, yeah. then you'll need to be able to call on these resources because I think it's more harmful for a white director to be like, oh, I've had all this training. I've done all this stuff. I can fully lead these conversations and support my actors. And that's not always the case. Yeah. Um, so I think it requires, so the, <sighs> sorry, my, my brain is so all over the place right now. That is um, okay. But to fully support your actors of color, especially during shows that involve scenes that open wounds of either fresh trauma or ancestral trauma, it requires a sort of intimacy to to actually support them fully and i think that you will only get that sort of support by bringing in people of color no that's i completely agree with that um i never thought of it that way so thank you for uh explaining those thoughts uh because i think they're very important um, and as a white person, I don't think I could phrase them or talk about them in that same way. So I'm really glad that our listeners uh, get to hear that. Uh, so finally, I just wanted to close out uh, kind of with a summation sort of question, which is, in your personal opinion, 
Why is this play important and why should other people read and or produce it? For me, this play touches on a lot of different topics that are especially relevant now, mm-hmm. including questions of justice versus injustice, police brutality, of protesting and what is quote unquote the right way to protest Mm -hmm. or quote unquote the wrong way to protest but I also think that it touches on this idea of ancestral trauma not just for the child who is haunted by her parents' memory. Mm -hmm. You know, she never actually met them, but her entire life has been shaped by the trauma between her parents and Bitter Eye. Yeah. But also um, this idea of towns, big or small, not being able to reconcile with their pasts. Mm -hmm. And because of that inability to do so, they are not able to move forward. You know, that's something that you see a lot in small towns. So the town in which this is being performed is Chickasha, Oklahoma. Okay. Chickasha has maybe 20,000 people there. All right. I spent five years there. <laughs> and it also has a long history of racism, police brutality within the Grady County um, prison system, But it's also a place where those things are not adequately or properly discussed in a way that is healing for the community. Mm -hmm. And so because they just sit there and keep simmering, you know, the town itself is dying. Yeah. And that's what's what's happening within the town that's within Desdemona's Child. It has never reconciled with its past. It has never reconciled with what did or did not go down between Beautiful D, Fierce O, and Bitter I. And so because of those things, it's dying. Um, So with all of those topics, um, I think that the play also does a really good job of, it doesn't necessarily take a specific side. If anything, it has the varying perspectives that you would find in a normal setting. And by normal setting, I mean on your local town's Facebook wall or at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that that kind of writing, because um, that kind of writing then opens up the door for there to be discussions amongst the audience. Um, and for us, at least, that is going to take place um, after the show. So we'll also have um, a talkback session afterwards. That's and great. that's really going to be a space where we not only discuss, you know, our ideas and um, things that we brought to the show, but also space for you know, our community members, because again, it's small town Oklahoma, yeah. um, to ask those questions of, well, why are protests okay? Or whatever it is in a space that is specifically designed to say, well, 
protesting is used as a way for oppressed peoples to to take back some sort of power mm, um yeah it, it's so this this show and thereby this performance is a way for those conversations um to really take place um it's very brechtian in that sort of way yeah and i think people should see it for that very same reason because i think that Something that I have noticed is that because of the state of our world, we are in very polarized times. Yeah. Um, I think that I personally see a lot of people posting and saying things like, if you're voting Republican, period, then, you know, you can delete me or block me out of your life. Or if you say something super problematic, then you're automatically canceled. Yeah. And you think that what this play does is it kind of takes that a step back mm-hmm. and is, okay, you asked this question. And so here is a thing for you to look at and to educate yourself on. Um, and even if it's not, educating as we typically would understand it, you know, coming into the space and being challenged with these, with these questions would then hopefully at least prompt more thought rather than defensiveness, if that makes sense. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it was beautifully put, Cynthia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Cynthia. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I think you've definitely persuaded the listeners to explore this play, as well as Cardod's Fitch's multiple other works. Cynthia, where can the people find you and your work? So I'm currently updating my website, um, and so the best place to find me right now is actually on Facebook or Instagram. Mm -hmm. So my Facebook is just my name, Cynthia Cunningham. And on Instagram, I am at C-Y-N underscore D-E-A-N-N. And those will be the first two places that get my updated website. Awesome. And this episode is coming out October 16th. Uh, When is Desdemona's Child premiering? So Desdemona's Child, we open on October 22nd. Amazing. Great. And we will be on Zoom at seven o'clock Central Standard Time. So if you're like me and you live in New York, that's going to be eight o'clock. All right. And they can find Zoom info on your Facebook? Yes, you can either find it on my Facebook or you can actually go check out and like the USAO Theater Arts Program that is USAO Theater Arts Program. That's amazing. So everyone, I highly recommend going out uh, into your internet domain and finding that because it's going to be a really, really awesome performance. So thanks again. Oh, sorry, Cynthia. <laughs> I was going to say I'm really excited about no, it. No, <laughs> I am too. And I hope everyone else listening is as well. So thanks again for joining me on this week's episode. You've made it fantastic. And thank everyone out there for listening. Um, If you'd like to contact the podcast to suggest plays or guests you might want to hear about, email me at theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com 
no hyphen. That's theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow the podcast on Instagram at at sign Playmates Podcast. That's at Playmates Podcast. Again, no hyphen. Also, something I've forgotten to mention in past episodes, please take a second to write a good review and rate the podcast five stars on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you can. It means a lot and would help the podcast get some good amplification on uh, not just those platforms, but a lot of others as well. I can't wait to see you all in next week's episode, in which I will be discussing George and Melissa and the Dragon by Bex Gobrin. Thanks again for listening. Moni wants to thank you for listening as well. Have a safe and fulfilling week, y'all. Bye for now. <laughs>